Hey everyone, welcome to episode 2 of the Trench Warfare Podcast brought to you by Blue Wire. I have a really special show planned for you today and it's centered around a player interview that I think will bring a ton of great insight into offensive line play with some fun stories and technical breakdowns about playing the position that you really are not going to find anywhere else. But first, I wanted to talk briefly about that Super Bowl and as it pertains to the trenches. This game wasn't very exciting necessarily if you're primarily watching football for points, which I think most people are. The fantasy football culture, I think ubiquitous across the NFL world. It's difficult sometimes for people to enjoy a game that doesn't have a lot of points. So this game, the final score was 13 to 3. And a pair of field goals made up really the only scores through the first three quarters of the game. But it was a defensive masterpiece on behalf of really Bill Belichick and their defensive coordinator, Brian Flores, who was calling the plays, as well as Rams defensive coordinator, Wade Phillips. So despite not a lot of points being scored, if you appreciate great defense and line play, this game was definitely for you. And the matchups within a game of football, to me, are really what make it such a great sport anyway. So you really have to look at the film, you know, I think. And I think now at this point in my career, watching the film is way more enjoyable than watching the game on TV. Like throughout this season, this past season, I didn't watch a ton of games on TV. Sometimes one a week, sometimes I didn't watch a game, a full game, you know, over the course of a couple weeks, but I always watch film. And that's really where you get to see what makes football such a dynamic, fun sport. And this game was no different. This game, really, from the Patriots' perspective inside the trenches, was a masterpiece. So the Patriots' offensive and defensive lines, not only did they play an outstanding football game, they did so while executing a complex game plan. So offensively, we'll start there. And there were over a dozen different types of running plays that I counted that the Patriots ran in this game. And that was mixed in with their stellar pass protection that we've accustomed that we've been accustomed to seeing from them all season. So that's really where I want to start. I want to focus on the interior of left guard Joe Tooney, center David Andrews, and right guard Shaq Mason. Last week we talked about these guys a little bit. You know, Andrews at center is undrafted. He was an undrafted player coming out of Georgia. Tooney was the highest drafted player on the offensive line. He was drafted in the third round, and Mason was a fourth-round pick out of Georgia Tech. So this unit, for being you know drafted lower, for the Patriots to not really dedicate a, a high amount of resources to acquiring them, for them to be as good as they are is just a testament to them. Dante Skarnecki, the offensive line coach, and it was all on display in this game. So we'll start with Tooney, who, in my opinion, had one of the best performances that you'll ever see from a guard going against Aaron Donald in this game. He was consistently under control in his pass sets on Donald and demonstrated tactful hand usage to combat Donald's really unmatched array of pass rush moves. So I posted a couple examples on Twitter recently in a thread that I did, but one rep stands out where Donald attempted his vaunted cross-chop move. So this is basically where Donald is attempting to reach across with his inside hand and pin down the outside arm of the blocker, which in this case was Tooney. And it usually causes the offensive line to the offensive lineman to lean forward once he loses that initial contact point. 
but Tooney was clearly prepared for it in this game, and he countered it on this specific rep by sliding that outside hand down and across Donald's hip. As opposed to having to bring it back, reset, and get back on Donald's frame, he just said, you know, he kind of let it, he kind of went with it and just guided that hand around Donald's hip and used that opposite hand to push him past the pocket. And I broke it down in slow motion on Twitter so you can really see it. It's just that level of nuance. Uh, Tooney's use of leverage in this game and just overall in his game and his ability to vary his strikes with independent hand usage I thought was special in this game. And then David Andrews, really what stands out to me about him in this game was that back block that he had in the fourth quarter on a power play. The Patriots were backed up, I think, inside their five-yard line, and uh, they ran power to the right side. David Andrews had a back block where he's going against the nose tackle to his left shoulder, and it was in Dominic Sioux. And he got just enough of him to help spring a 26-yard gain. And it really broke the back of the Rams' defense and helped seal that game. But that's a, that's a high-level, difficult block. And Andrews executed it brilliantly on a very good player in Sue as well. So that really stood out to me. And then we go over to Shaq Mason, who really had an overall phenomenal game and playoffs overall. I think he is just continually this season increasingly got better with each week in the playoffs. I mean, he was playing at an elite level, and he continually is showing why he has become a top-five right guard in the NFL, in my opinion. And when you look at him on film, I think you have to start with his natural leverage. He's six foot one, so I think he's probably the shortest guard in the NFL right now, if not one of the two or three shortest. And that really gives him excellent natural leverage on the field. So his pad level and his base are very strong and and secure and he had, he's very strong on top of that as well but the thing that's most improved is his hand usage especially as a pass protector knowing when and how to strike guys and it was really special to watch in this game in particular going against guys like Brockers and Sue and Donald he even baited rushers in this game which is really being really aggressive on one rep faking that aggressiveness the next rep and that causes the rusher to be off balance just for that split second and then his whole timing um, and his his positioning is, is messed up from there so Mason was kind of playing games and dictating things to pass rushers in this game which is really one of my signs of a great player I think when you see an offensive lineman dictating things to defensive linemen in the in the one-on-one pass rush scenarios you have something special there and mason has really started to do that with with his game and if we go to the defensive side of the ball i mean it's just very similar to what you saw last week against the chiefs in terms of a lot of nuanced blitzes stunts and deception from the defensive front seven in this game there was often times when they just played one defensive lineman on the field, and that was Trey Flowers a lot of the time, who is a, basically a, an edge rusher, and they would put him inside, and that put a lot of stress on center, on Ram center, John Sullivan, right guard, Austin Blythe. Um, you know, I think the most comprehensive review of this game from a defensive perspective is it was from uh, Bill Barnwell, who is a writer for ESPN.com. He called this the greatest defensive performance in Super Bowl history, and he wrote a really great breakdown on the site that you could check out, and I highly recommend doing that. It was it, He really touched on it from a lot of different 
angles, and he he made a very compelling case for this being the the top performance in Super Bowl history. You know, up there with the '85 Bears when they held the Patriots to ten points in the Super Bowl um, that year, when they had maybe the greatest defense ever. So it was it was really a special special performance from the defensive side as well. So, you know, with that being said, and that quick review done of the Super Bowl, I wanted to get right into this interview that I have planned for you this week, and it is with Kansas City Chiefs right tackle and 2018 first-team All-Pro Mitchell Schwartz. All right, everybody, I'm joined now by Kansas City Chiefs right tackle Mitchell Schwartz. What's up, man? How are things going so far this offseason? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. You know, we've talked in the past a couple of times, um, but this is really cool to have you on my own podcast now. And, uh, you know, it's it, it was a lot of fun to watch you this season. You know, you had one of the best years of your career, if not the best. You know, you were named a, a first-team All-Pro, which was just awesome after the last couple of years being a second-team All-Pro. Uh, it's still it's still funny you haven't made a Pro Bowl yet, which kind of <laughs> talks about speaks to their process and maybe some things that are wrong with it, which I think is just funny. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, Schwartz is a, a seven-year veteran with 112 career starts. He's never missed a game or a snap in his career, which I think is you know one of the more impressive streaks that are going on right now in the NFL you know which is the longest current streak going as far as uh consecutive snaps played which is just a testament to you know durability maybe a little bit of luck and a lot of preparation so that's that's a very cool thing Uh, but I wanted to start with something new that you started that is a, a website dedicated to your love for cooking so can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to start the site yeah, it's uh, kind of a simple thing, but I mean, I've always loved to cook, and it's something that as I've gotten into the NFL and, uh, you know, had more time in the offseason and had more space than, you know, a college dorm room or, you know, a small apartment in college, that uh, it just, I've kept cooking and then learning new recipes. And, um, you know, I like to do it. I figure other people do. So I started to share that on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, people really liked it. You know, they tend to gravitate towards, you know, brisket and, barbecue and especially in kansas city and uh you know some of the pizza recipes but i also like to you know keep it healthy every now and again because you can't you can only smash brisket you know so many days a week and pizza so um you know i I post i post uh you know cool pictures of food and people would like it and ask for recipes and you know enough um ask for recipes that i thought it'd just be easy enough to you know kind of type them out online do like a simple uh blog or website and, and post it along with with the pictures of the food and um, yeah, I launched that last week. I mean, it's nothing special, but it's uh, MitchInTheKitch.blog, and uh, it's been great like so that. far. I mean, I got yeah, my wife picked that out. We uh, we kind of figured out the name, and then it just popped in our head, and we really liked it. And you know, and, yeah, that, that uh, it's flows. Been good. So I got yeah, so I got two lessons up there so far, and you know, the plans, you know, two maybe three recipes a week. Um, but just you know, as I took some new things, or some of the you know my staples that I traditionally post. Uh, kind of posting the recipe alongside with it so people can try it on their own and i think that's the most fun thing with cooking is you know the recipe is just the template and then from there you can kind of do what you want with it and so you know half the time it's it's recipes i've seen elsewhere and then you know i made it the first time and eh, it wasn't quite exactly the way i like to do it so i'm going to change this and add this ingredient take this one out and um, right so it's not necessarily you know you need to follow this to 
took it perfectly. It's more, you know, this is my adaptation on a traditional dish, or this is how I like to do that one. And, um, you know, I'm not uh, too creative in life, but uh, cooking is one outlet where <laughs> I show that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're going to be doing two or three a week over the course of the off season, by the end of the, the off season, for sure, we're going to have a ton of recipes to go to on there, which I'm sure my wife and I are going to try out a few of those. So I'm really <laughs> excited about it. I think that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to kind of take it back a little bit, just, just briefly and touch on your time in Cleveland. Um, you know, getting drafted there, you know, 37th overall in the 2012 draft. Um, you had a, a really, really good career at Cal. You know, you had, uh, I believe it was 51 starts total, 35 at left tackle, 16 at right tackle. Um, and, you, you know, you come into Cleveland and you get to go to what I think is a really, really special room in terms of offensive linemen, you know, where you have a guy like Joe Thomas, um, Alex Mack, John Greco. And, you know, I wanted to talk about the impact that that had on you and the foundation of your career for being inserted into such like a talented and veteran room and getting to see how they were, you know, preparing each week. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it definitely helped, you know, get me to a higher level of success than I would have had if I, if I didn't go there. And you know, I got lucky, um, you know, one, I didn't think I was going to be drafted that high. You know, I'm not the typical you know, measurable guy that goes to the combine and blows yeah. everybody out with the 40 and the broad jump and the vert and all that. So, you know, I think, you know, I credit Tom Heckard was the GM and, um, you know, I credit him for, you know, taking me and, and that was awesome. But they're able to, you know, kind of look beyond the numbers and look yep. at production and look at, you know, can this guy block consistently? And um, right. obviously that answer was yes. But um, so I'm really thankful to him and the organization for taking me that high first off. And then, you know, I, I, get drafted there like you said Alex Mack is there we played together in college so you know I already know not even someone on the team but someone in my own room that I'm going to spend every day with and so um, that was really good for me for going into a new situation and you know having a friend there and someone that um, you know you can ask kind of dumb questions to and the, oh you know how do I do this what, what's the protocol on that you know you don't have to feel um, like you're asking a, a silly question and um, so I already had a friend there and then obviously you know it's pretty hard to, to be going to a room with Joe Thomas. So, and, you know, learning from him, you yeah. know, preparation, technique, you know, how he sees the game. Um, you know, you just realize how really easily he sees things and, um, you know, he does his best to put it into kind of layman terms for the rest of us. But, uh, you know, right. stuff for him where he'll just, he'll just say, yeah, you just, you know, put your hands here. You know, I think we've probably all seen that Ryan Baldinger uh, video with him where he's talking about, yeah, you know, I'm going for, you know, the inside bicep with my right arm and my left arm's going for the tip of the outside number. No, it makes it sound it's so like easy. great when everything's static and then he's doing that against, you know, four or four guys off the edge and, and live speed and <laughs> it's just such a different game for him. So, yeah, but having him to, you know, kind of walk through thought processes of, you know, how do you defeat this? What works for you? What doesn't? You know, our styles were a little, were a little bit different, especially when it came to bull rush. Um, you know, my thing is more the, the Hamilton or kind of lifting the momentum up where Joe's is kind of hunkering down and, and, you know, kind of fortifying his body position. So the guy kind of just gets stoned right away. And, you know, we would go back and forth and talk about, you know, different uh, angles and levers and, and all that. And so that was a lot of fun to, to bounce ideas off each other. And then, like you said, Greco, I mean, 
he was great. I mean, he started as a tackle and then kicked inside uh, after a few years in his career. And so he's had experience right. across the board. And mm-hmm. um, he's an awesome guy. I mean, um, yeah, I think he's had one of the more criminally underrated careers for, you know, 10 or 11 year vet in, in the NFL. And, you know, yeah. he gets in, he, he does a really good job. And so, yeah, I mean, you talk about those, those three guys, a Hall of Famer, a uh, guy who's the best at his position for a few years and still one of the best. And then, you know, a guy who's just, you know, the, the stud and, like you said, the, the cool thing with that room is they're all great people too, and so you know all those guys are in my wedding, and um, still talk to them all the time. And so yeah, it's just that's a great so blend cool. of you know mentorship, leadership, and, and friendship. Yeah, for sure. That's that's uh you know what a privilege to start your career like that. I mean, just getting getting in that room and being in that environment. I'm you know, and as you say, it's just been huge for your career, and you've really taken advantage of, of it, obviously, to to where you are now and. Um, you know, when you were in that room, is there like a, a certain um, studying, you know, um, skill that you that you learned there in terms of uh, film film watching? You know, is there a technique that you picked up there that you could talk about a little bit from, you know, either t- Joe Thomas or just the coach or just anything like that? Is there certain things that you look at on film even to today that you kind of learned initially from that room? Yeah, you know. With Mac, I, I sat next to Mac in the meeting room, and um, you know, he's interesting during the season. Um, he likes to essentially forget a game plan and then learn a game plan new, like for that particular week. So, hmm. um, you know, say week one, you're playing a certain team, and you're gonna, you know, block a protection this way. The next week, he's not gonna say, "Oh, we changed it from last week, or we made this slight adjustment." He's gonna basically, you know, kind of relearn it, like. This week, it's this rule. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily do that. Sounds I kind of you know, always have the base rule in the back. Yeah. <laughs> he calls it the spaghetti theory, where essentially every week is an individual strand of spaghetti. So, gotcha. um, you know, they're all kind of separate. They're all kind of on their own. Um, and our offensive line coach at the time didn't necessarily coach or think like that. And so they always, not, they didn't butt heads, but they just, they learned each other's, you know, teaching styles and learning styles. And that's cool to see, you know, when a coach couldn't, figure out, hey, my guy learns best like this, he does it this way, I have to adapt to him. Um, right. That's what makes a good coach. And so, you know, yep. at the time, that was George Warhop, and, you know, he was great at, you know, we don't all learn the same way. And so he learns Alex's style, Alex learns his style. Um, they come to the best way to figure out how to, you know, communicate with each other, coach to each other. And that was cool to see, you know, the interaction between them two, you know, especially for the center position where, you know, he's the one in charge of directing everything. He's got to get the information the, the best and the cleanest. So, that was interesting to me to see, you know, his way of thinking about each week and each individual game plan. And then, you know, I leaned on Drew more for the individual, hey, what are you looking for on film? You know, how do you feel about that? And, you know, he, he liked to chart everything, especially pass rushes. Um, yeah. You know, guys, best, best pass rush move isn't necessarily going to be the thing he does most often. You know, typically, it's not necessarily the thing he does most often. And so... You know, if a guy only spins two to three times a game and for 30 pass sets, you're worried about the spin move, you know, those 27 other times, um, maybe you get beat on something that's not necessarily his best move because um, you're too worried about it. And so you understand, hey, what does he do most often? What does he do most And then from there, you can kind of formulate the game plan for, you know, I want to take this away, I want to take that away, but I also have to be wary that, you know, 60% of the time that's going to happen. And so, um, you know, if you're too worried about an inside move and a guy's still pretty good at an outside move and you understand him all game, he's probably going to get home, you know, pushing around the corner. So um, right. just understanding that, that gives you a better understanding for, you know, guys moves fully. And then, 
you're looking at kind of critical pass rush situations to a guy's pass rush on first and 10, you know, when you're in a balanced formation and let her pass, you know, it's not going to be, you know, truly indicative of third and 12. He's, he's blowing smokes off the edge. What's he going to go to? Um, so yeah. Planning, you know, the, the situation to look for where you, where you get to find what's he really going to lean on when he needs to get home. Yeah. So really, I guess, you know, it's, it's about charting the frequency of moves that they use and then breaking that down to the situations that they use them in. And then every rusher, like you said, I think at least every really good rusher kind of has that ace in the hole type move that they, they go to in those critical situations. And, you know, I think that's a great point to not, you know, hone in on that one necessarily, just know it's there, but not really, you know, you're not looking for it necessarily like on a snap to snap basis, which, which makes sense, you know, so. Yeah, and then you know the crazy thing as you're you know, kind of talking about that is you know, how much information that is to process. And so yeah. you get up to the line of scrimmage, you have to you know get lined up, identify the defense, know your rule, know what could happen if they bring a blitz or an adjustment, you know the snap count, and now you're thinking about all right, I'm going up against this guy, it's this situation, he likes to do this, I want to do this against him. You know that's a lot to go on, and so yep. um, you know you realize you know it's not just rolling the ball out there and lining up and then going to block a guy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that balance between being, you know, ultra prepared, but then also being able to just kind of, you know, cut loose, you know, when the ball is snapped and just play football and balancing that. I mean, that's one of the most, if not like the most difficult things, I think probably about being a pro. I mean, you know, I just from the outside looking in and knowing all this stuff now, it just seems like that balance is something that, you know, only the really good players yeah, and, can master. Yeah, and guys, I mean, guys do it differently. So, you know, this past week, there were some articles about Trent Brown, and, you know, he talks about he doesn't necessarily watch a ton of film on the guy he's facing. You know, obviously yeah. across the, the week, you see plenty of film and situations, and you watch really everything that you need to watch. But he doesn't necessarily do the film study because for him, you know, kind of like a baseball hitter or pitcher where if you watch too much and you study too much, you kind of get overwhelmed with information. You shut down a little bit. And so for him, it's easier for him to just kind of watch things throughout the week and go out there and just say, hey, I'm going to take my pass set. I'm going to do me. Good luck beating me. And obviously yeah. that works really well for him. So, you know, that's each guy kind of finds his own way. And um, yeah. that's another cool thing is everyone's got a little different spin on it. Yeah, that's that's uh, very true because I had just spoke with Joe Staley last week on this podcast and he was kind of more in that Brown camp in terms of, you know, I was asking him to talk to me about his film study and it was just, you know, he didn't have a whole lot to, to go to there because he basically said, you know, he, he really focuses on his feet and, you know, in, in drills and practice and whatnot, he goes full speed with, you know, his footwork, but everything else after that he said once he gets to his spot i mean he just kind of plays you know he doesn't really have yeah you know too much of a plan from there so i thought that was interesting and you know it's really specific to him probably but um <clears throat> you know the, the the next thing i just wanted to touch on was you know and I, i'm only bringing this up because i know that you're not superstitious so um you know as far <laughs> as the snap streak you know, I think that this is, it, it is a pretty big deal. I mean, just in terms of the you know NFL history um, and just what it means to, to, to have something like this going, it, it's, it's special, you know, it just doesn't happen very often. So, you know, you, you currently hold the longest streak in the NFL without missing a snap. At, you know, I think it's, I know it's over 7,000 at this point, um, the exact number, I'm not, mm -hmm. not sure, but, you know, and, and then Joe Thomas has, you know, obviously the record all time uh, for offensive line at over 10,000. So, 
just that streak, you know, can you talk about uh, the significance for you, if there is any, um, and, and just if there is even a little bit more that Thomas, you know, your former teammate is the only guy ahead of you with that streak? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's something that, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily think about you. People say, hey, you know, Joe's never missed a snap. And you're like, oh, wow, that's, you know, crazy. Uh, how did he do that? And Yeah. And, and uh, it's not a big thing. And then, you know, as he's got you know, popularity and um, you kind of reflect a little bit and realize how special that was. And obviously he was able to do it at an all-pro level for half years. So uh, he's, you know, even more of a freak. But, you know, it, it is important. I mean, it, it goes to, you know, durability and, um, you know, you want to be out there for your guys, for your quarterback especially. You know, you take a lot of pride in, in blocking for that guy. And, you know, this year we had a, a pretty special quarterback, and so you want to be out there for him and um, you have to protect him and make sure he can do all the, the crazy things he does. And you want to be there for your other line mates. I mean, there's a great synergy where you know, everyone helps everybody. You know, it's not necessarily just the center making calls or just one or the quarterback. Or, you know, everyone kind of sees it, the whole defense. You, know, you communicate to each other as much as you can every play if you see something. Um, so you want to be out there for them. And, you know, like you said, luck goes into it. I mean, I never had, you know, 900 pounds fall on my leg at an awkward angle and, and, you know, some of the other things that the guys have. So yeah, exactly. definitely got, got lucky from that perspective. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a cool thing to have, especially, you know, a position that doesn't really have counting stats or, or ways to quantify, um, you know, what you do. Obviously, just being out there doesn't mean you're, you're playing well, but it, it is important to, you know, be out there for your guys and your teammates and, um yeah, it's something that, that's awesome, and you know, I've told you I want to you know break his record just to invalidate all the signatures he signed with my number. Uh, <laughs> yeah. to, uh, you know, kind of do that, and I told him he's got enough accolades and records and, and all that that uh, you know, hopefully I can I can take that one over from him. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, hopefully you get there. I mean, I you know, obviously room for you to do that. I think that'd be very cool. That's a definitely a record i think that offensive line maybe more than any other position takes the most pride in you know being out there for everybody so that's that's very cool um so just going to a, a little bit more of uh, the specifics with offensive line play you know i i really started you know watching um you know your game film like in the, the 2014 season in cleveland and you know then i you know i thought you were you know, a really good player then um but since then you know, what do you think the biggest improvements to your game have been, or maybe the single, you know, biggest improvement over the course of the last, you know, maybe just a couple of years, you know, the, the one area that you've worked on maybe more than any other, you know, I, I just think about, you know, one thing that I've seen on film is how you deal with like the long arm, you know, for instance, I thought that that's gradually gotten better throughout your career, being able to, you know, break contact with guys and, quicker and you know use your hands a little bit better in in terms of breaking off that that move but so that's one thing you can maybe talk about a little bit but is there something that kind of jumps out to you at all that you feel like you've improved the most on I think that would probably be the starting point for the thing I've you know gotten the best at and the thing that you know kind of helps me counter what what other guys do well the most um yeah like you said just understanding overall how to use my hands better um you know, how to defeat the long arm. You know, some guys like to chop it, but the chop is, you know, not necessarily the best thing when a guy's long arming you, you know, kind of in your upper chest and your shoulder area. Um, you know, he's not going to have the forward lean that allows you to chop it. You know, right. chop's better for if they're landing it, you know, more in your, the center mass of your, your chest, more in um, kind of the lower area. Um, 
that way his momentum, you know, when you chop it, he'll fall on the ground. Right. I think we saw, I mean, this gets super specific, but, you know, in the, the Alabama championship game where Jonah Williams chopped the guy, but the guy didn't fall. And yeah, he, ended up he got blown up Jonah a little bit. Chest. Yep. Um, yeah, so that, that's one of the perils. If, if you do go to the chop and you don't fully land it and he kind of just stumbles into you, now he's, you know, stumbling into a vulnerable part of your body um, with pretty good momentum and leverage. So, yeah, um, yeah I've always kind of gets back to what, you know, I was talking about, talking about, to Joe with about bull rushes is, you know, I've learned to kind of lift the momentum up and, you know, lift the long arm and that's called the Hamilton. And, um, I think that in general has just led to, you know, better play, being able to utilize that against long arm guys, um, understanding just overall hand leverage and, and angles and, and play, you know, like you said, is 2014, my third year. So I probably just took, you know, the same pass set 90% of the time I had one change of pass set, uh, mostly just, you know, throwing my hands in a traditional punch. I wasn't really doing much to, you know, counter what guys were doing. I was just trusting my set and, and my spot and my hands. Um, now I've got, you know, way more pass sets, way more angles, more I can do with my hands, uh, more counters, more kind of tricks and trade stuff. And, yeah. um, it's you know, to go back to the baseball metaphor, but, you know, now you're talking about a pitcher with seven different pitches instead of, you know, pretty much yeah. one pitch and, and one off-speed pitch. And so it just gives the defense a lot more to think about. And, you know, throws off their timing too because, you know, they get, once they get used to your rhythm and, and the timing of that, then they can time their moves even better and, and kind of defeat you. And they know you're going to be in that spot at that time and use your hands at that specific uh, moment in time. You know, they can defeat that, you know, not say easily, but um, they have a much better chance than if you're mixing things up and um, you're throwing them off and you're catching them at awkward angles. Yeah, for sure. That's that baseball analogy is something that uh, Teron Armstead used, you know, with me when I talked to him. And I think he used it, you know, when we were talking at the offensive line masterminds event there um, in Texas as well as, you know, that's something that he prides himself in as being unpredictable on film, you know, which I think is, you know, something that the pass rushers are trying to do themselves. And I think, you know, I mean, something for me, at least the last year, I've really noticed it, you know, when I watch film, it's just something that I've been more aware of is like the best offensive linemen in the NFL specifically like tackles they they have that they have that ability to go to different pass sets use different hand techniques and things like that and you know it's part of that game that you know that you guys are playing you know in terms of being hard to prepare for for rushers and you know whatnot so that's something that I really noticed this year as well um, but your hand techniques uh, you know I <laughs> I mean, definitely, you know, among the best in the NFL, if not the best. So I think that's probably, you know, what makes your game so special. Um, but it, it more of uh, going to more of like a unit perspective, the whole, the whole offensive line, there's there's a, a moment for me that was sort of a light bulb moment. And that was when I learned, and this is, you know, a few years ago, but it's really kind of um, helped crystallize how I look at, you know, uh, the whole unit. Um, and that's the two different type of pockets that offensive linemen can create for a quarterback. And it's something that we talked about, and you're the one to really open up my eyes to it. So, you know, basically, you know, the first is, you know, where you vertical set the tackles and the guards are real firm, you know, up front to create more of like a tall, narrow pocket. And then the other one is setting everyone a little bit more flat in order to widen the pocket, and that kind of creates more overall space for the quarterback to maneuver. We've talked about some of the offensive lines that do each. Um, I'm pretty sure you're more of a proponent of you know the former, where you get to vertical set a little bit more. But could you talk about you know uh, the pros and cons of each of those and how they impact an offense? Yeah, um, you know, like you worked it down pretty well. 
Um, so for for me personally, we were vertical setters when I got to Cleveland, and so that's just kind of what I got used to and got best at. And so yeah. obviously you kind of revert to, to what you're most comfortable with. And um, so for that right. pocket, like you said, I mean, the tackles are setting more vertical. So, you know, you get bull rush or you get pushed a little bit, you're a little bit closer to the quarterback's lap. Yeah. Um, you know, typically, um, like you said, you can't also have, you know, the interior three guys, you know, getting five or six yards deep because that doesn't allow the quarterback to step up. So, um, you know, interior firmness is pretty much a staple of, of most uh, most offenses or offensive lines rather. And, um, but it is right. important for, for vertical setting because, you know, if the quarterback, you know, feels a little bit of squeeze, he's going to step up and, and evade it. And, um, you know, so it's really important. Um, I feel like the trend, these days are, are less vertical setting um, more towards your kind of space and, and width and the the downside to the space and width is you know, picking up stunts picking up games if guys are um, creating more horizontal stretch you know in, in terms of, of opening up gaps and seams um, you're able to see defenders get to edges and um, you know we saw the Patriots just kill with it the entire postseason yeah you know, once you get to a guy's they edge really and, and there's space and yeah, and there's extra space, you know, in there, whether it's guards who aren't quite holding space inside or tackles from an oversetting. Um, you know, you, you're able to get the, the twists and the stunts and the games home. Um, that, that's an advantage for vertical setting is, um, you know, TEs are incredibly, incredibly easy for the tackle when you're vertical setting. You basically, the guy just falls into your lap, the, the, the three-tech that, that, that the guard's um, going against. He basically just falls into your lap, and then the guard just hands him off to you, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, ETs are a little more difficult for the most part. You're going to be on a different level, you know, especially yeah. if the guards get a, a firm setting. But to me, that was always easier. Essentially, you're just de- defending as an offensive lineman against a pretty poor inside move. The guy's not trying to beat you inside. He's trying to, you know, go hit the hip of a guard who's not necessarily there. And so you kind of just pass that off on different levels, and the quarterback can pretty much stay where he is, and it ends up being a pretty clean pocket. And so you know, for the, the flat and wide pocket, ETs are a little bit easier. The tackle is not quite as deep. He's more on the guards level. Um, the TEs do get hard, especially if the other tackles taking angle sets. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And handling stunts, I think that's kind of where I was going with that question was, you know, the difference in each, which you touched on there in terms of how you handle them. And the importance of maintaining levels for offensive line is another thing that I, you know, try to look for on film. You know, if guys are good at doing that, or not and just how important that is and I think like you said the Patriots really highlighted the importance of the ability of offensive linemen to maintain levels which like it's so difficult you know when the, you know you see a front like the Patriots are thrown out there with you know like one defensive lineman and just a bunch of fast guys that are just standing around and you don't really know where it's mm-hmm. coming from and you know things like that so you know, in terms of handling stunts, you know, when you either like zone them off or, or man them up, like what, what dictates that for you, you know, based on what you see? Um, is it just sort of something that you game plan for ahead of time during the week? Or is that kind of, you know, is it flexible, you know, on game day, depending on what they're doing? How, how does that, how is that dictated? Right. So, um, you know, TE should basically always be passed off. And to me, that's more on, the guard to get good extension from the three technique. And so, you know, as long as he doesn't let a guy kind of get to that outside shoulder without any separation, the tackle should be able to pick up the three tech. And then the onus is on the guard to, you know, disengage himself from the three tech and pick up the looper. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. some coaches teach it where if you just assume every play is a TE, 
you're basically punching the three tech. You're getting separation and width. You know, if it's not, if it's a straight rush, you've already kind of defeated him. He's off his spot. You have inside leverage. You're in a good spot to then, you know, quote unquote recover, but you're already in a good spot. If it is a TE, well, you just knocked him across to your tackle, and now you're in the spot you need to be to pick up the looper. Right. And so, you know, a guard nice. is kind of the, the focal point of, of the TE yeah. to me. And the ET is more the tackle. So for the most part, the guy who has the, the, the penetrator, the guy who's, um, you know, looking to, to pick the other guy's hip, that's going to be the guy who is more important. And so on the ET, that's the tackle. You know, he's got the defensive end. Um, you know, you're going to do your, your best to flatten the guy off. Like I said, if you're vertical setting and you're, you know, at a four-yard difference from your guard, um, it's going to be a really awkward spot for the end to be in because he's not going to be sure if does he just go on the path he assumed he was going to go to get the guard's hip or does he – basically stop, make a complete 90-degree turn, and go run at the guard. And now if you're doing that, he's basically taking himself out of the rush, and um, he might blow up the guard, but it's going to be really hard to get the looper home. So a traditional ET, the onus is on the tackle to stop the defensive end penetrating, get some separation, and then like you said, whether you man it or pass it off, that's now on the guard. So gotcha. ideally the guard okay. kind of feels the two-tech. He's not really rushing. Something's happening. You grab the two-tech. You don't want to disengage. Um, you grab the two-tech. You look at the defensive end. If he's coming towards you, then you go and stop the penetration. If he, you feel like he's going behind you, you kind of see in your hip up and around, and then you can just man it off. And then the tackle, if he's doing his part, you know, he's kind of square in the front of the defensive end, and he just keeps blocking the defensive end. And you know that's the best way to pass it off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So with with stunts, you know, uh, who who are a couple, uh, you know, maybe a duo that you faced, um, you know, to tackle and that, you know, some of the hardest guys to prepare against. Is there is there a single player just on stunts or is there a duo that come to mind that were, you know, more difficult than others? I mean, most recently the Patriots, just kind of their whole front, um, that's how they thrive this postseason. But yeah. on an individual or duo basis, obviously the Chargers guys, I mean, Ingram and Bosa, um, yeah. especially when they're on the same thinking. side. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, they both, they, I mean, they both can wreck shop one-on-one and then both wreck shop, you know, run two man games. And so yeah. you kick those guys into guard and um, you know, it's a different speed. It's a different quickness for guard. So you already have an advantage. And then, you know, what really makes those guys so good is they're versatile. So Ingram can juke you outside, juke you inside, spin back outside. You beat, um, you know, he can just straight up blow by you at, at three technique and then go field and beat you around the corner. And, um, you know, there's so much they can do, and it's not predictable because they can go inside, they can go outside, they can fake inside to go outside, fake outside to go inside. Um, right. And then, I mean, we saw it, you know, in the Super Bowl with Hightower, you know, his ability to get a guy's hand swatted as he's the penetrator, and that's what those guys do so well in the Chargers is, you know, they kind of beat you as they're, working in tandem with the other to get the other guy free. And so um, it's it's pretty deadly. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's good stuff. So yeah, that's, that's probably going to do it. I mean, we could probably talk more football, you know, for a while, but I think that we touched on a lot there, you know, just uh, overarching type stuff with your career and then some, you know, the, the, the nuanced stuff that I know people you know, listen to this podcast for. So I just wanted to thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. I know that everybody's going to enjoy it. And, um, you know, just have a, have a great off season. We're, we're looking forward to following along with you and, and uh, the website as well. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I always love talking at my place. Definitely. All right. Thanks a lot, Mitch. So I hope everybody enjoyed that interview with Mitchell Schwartz. I think he gave great insight into a bunch of different topics there. And I think the interview took us inside of some of what makes him such a great player. And that really starts, I think, with how smart and articulate he is about the game of football. It comes very easy to him from a mental perspective. And that translates directly to the field. And it makes up for him being a quote-unquote bad athlete per the combine, you know, relative to his peers. He plays very fast in what I call that is play speed on film when you're watching a player. How he marries his athleticism with his mental processing is play speed, and it's really how fast they play the game and how fast they execute assignments and responsibilities. He makes up for a lack of raw athleticism with extraordinarily refined technique, efficiency, and elite mental processing. And it really allows him to stay ahead, uh, stay one step ahead of the vast majority of his opponents on the field. So uh, that was a fun interview. If you enjoyed it and want to hear more just like it, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and follow along as we continue to peel back the curtain and go inside the world of offensive line play unlike anywhere else. And before I let you go, I wanted to plug a podcast that is also part of the Blue Wire family, and that is The Coffee House Stunt by Ted Wynn, who is one of the smartest, most insightful analysts in the world of football. He also writes for The Athletic, somebody that I follow very closely. I am subscribed to that podcast and listen to it weekly. Ted is excellent. So go ahead and check that out. And thank you so much again for tuning in to the Trench Warfare Podcast.